0: From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. After nearly two decades at the helm of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Providence, Bishop Thomas Tobin will soon be handing control over to a new leader. Pope Francis appointed Reverend Richard Henning of New York to be the next bishop in Rhode Island. Installed as the 8th Bishop of Providence in 2005, Tobin will likely officially step down in the spring, ending a tenure that has sometimes put him in the national spotlight. This week on Newsmakers, our guest, Bishop Thomas Tobin. (laughs) <laughs> welcome to newsmakers i'm tim white alongside 12 news politics editor ted nisi our guest this week bishop thomas tobin from the roman catholic diocese of providence welcome back to the program for Good our morning. Annual nice,
1: show nice to be with you once again it is an annual show and uh, they seem to pass very quickly yes they yeah. do <laughs> year to year right
0: <laughs> um so as i said in that piece there pope francis announced <laughs> your replacement before you were even required <clears throat> to send in your resignation letter when you turned 75 years old. I'm sure a lot of people saw that as the Vatican sending you a pretty stark message, but you have said you asked for this. Right. Why?
1: Well, that's how the process works, that when you receive an auxiliary bishop or a coadjutor, it's because the current bishop has requested that. And especially in this case, um, you might remember, it's not the um, first time this has happened in the history of the Diocese of Providence. Bishop Movi was appointed as coadjutor to Bishop Jeleneau, um 18 years ago, or before that, almost 25 years ago, I suppose. Um, so it's happened before and I requested it this time for the, because of the rather unusual set of circumstances that both um, Bishop Evans and I are classmates and it's very unusual, perhaps unprecedented in our country to have the bishop and his auxiliary bishop be about the same age we're Mm -hmm. within six months of each other so i recognize that bishop evans would be retiring soon which now he has and i'm next in line Uh, my birthday is in april so i will be standing in my letter i thought it would be um, too much of a shock for the diocese to have two bishops retiring within six months of each other and i thought it'd be very very helpful Uh, for the diocese to continue the ministry in a very smooth way, to provide for a smooth transition, to have my successor already in place before um, I had to send in my letter for retirement. So he will be, Bishop Henning will be assisting me and then he'll be ready to take over whenever my letter of of retirement is accepted by the Holy Father. So it was not something that Pope Francis imposed at all. It was something I requested through the, uh, uh, the Nuncio in Washington then to the pope and the pope very uh generously you can understand why people thought otherwise right um yeah i suppose i can (laughs) Um, but again it's not the first time it's happened in providence and it's not completely unusual but i requested it because of the very unique circumstances of the auxiliary bishop and myself retiring at about the same time the same age i thought it'd make for a smoother a transition. If the Pope had wanted to impose something to take over the diocese, in effect, he would have sent what's called an apostolic administrator. In other words, he would send somebody in that I didn't request to take over the diocese, mm. and that's not at all not at all what happened. The Pope did us a favor, did me a favor by uh, approving my request.
2: Well, we don't get the drama of, of white smoke over uh, the Cathedral of St. Peter and Paul when a new bishop comes to Providence, but I am curious, uh, you know, politics, we call it a tick-tock, where we go behind the scenes, how a process came together. Um, I'm curious with this one, when did you first approach the nuncio in Washington, mm-hmm. who is the Pope's representative in, in the states. Um, and then, did you have any input? Did you hear anything about what was going on? Do you know anything about who they talked to, how they came up with Bishop Penning? Kind of, what can you share with us about the process?
1: Sure, and um, each process is a little bit different. Basically, what happens is the nuncio, the apostolic nuncio in Washington, who's the Pope's representative, he's the, the the quarterback for this whole process, not just here, but across the country. Anytime a new bishop is named, the Nuncio is deeply involved in that. I started the process, I think it was back in, maybe as early as February or March, I wrote to the nuncio explaining the circumstances I just mentioned to you about the change in the diocese coming up. Uh, he wrote back and said, you've given a good uh, explanation. He said, now you need to write the same letter to the Pope. Yeah. So I wrote pretty much the same letter to the Holy Father, I think in March probably. And then uh, pretty quickly I got a response saying the uh, nuncio or the Pope had approved the request for a co So that was step one. And then the process begins of choosing when it will happen and who it will be. So that took several months. And then, just in November, I got the word that uh, um, the Bishop Henning would be the coadjutor, and that uh, then we talked about the timing for his reception and so forth and the the transition. So it's really the nuncio in Washington who who shepherds this whole thing and you start out by asking for the coadjutor. then the process of selecting who it will be begins and typically the nuncio will write to people in the diocese say um, you know what you think the needs of the diocese are did that um, happen this time? yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it did and he also asked me by the way to do a little summary of what the diocese the, the status quo and so forth mm-hmm. what the needs of the diocese would be going what to did, future. What did,
2: well what did you tell him? that's interesting. well it was
1: a long letter I mean it talked <laughs> about the uh, uh, you know, the pastoral situation, the spiritual situation, the mass attendance, the number of vocations, the number of priests, number of religious, Catholic schools, social uh, ministry. What do you identify as
0: the top challenge for the diocese then of that long list?
1: Oh, wow, the top challenge. Um, I don't know. I think, as I've said before, and I think it continues to be, the uh, participation of people in the life of the church. As you know, uh, the mass attendance has dropped off dramatically people are dropping out of religious communities, not just the Catholic Church, but religious faith communities across the board. People aren't um, participating as much in their religious communities as they were you know 30 and 40 and 50 years ago. It's changed dramatically, especially in this part of the world. So I think the participation of the people in the life of the church and attending Sunday Mass and receiving the sacraments, we have fewer baptisms, we have fewer many fewer weddings, fewer confirmations, even fewer burials. Um, So the participation of people in the life of the church, I think, is the big challenge, the, the the very secular world in which we're living. So the church has a definite role to play in the midst of this very secular world, secular culture in which we're living. So I think that's the big challenge, not just for this diocese, but for the Catholic Church across the country and in this part of the world and other other religious
2: communities as well and so uh, talking <laughs> about bishop henning people might have seen a video of him from his press conference but he's not actually my understanding is he's not actually here in providence yet there's gonna be a mass at the end of january Correct. where he formally takes on his role and, and yeah he's,
1: he's still very active still working uh, the guy's Rocco
2: center in new york but, well you've, you've met him now i don't know if you knew of him before this and met him through bishop circles at all what what's your impression of the guy so far
1: well you're right i did not know him at all before i got the call from the nuncio. In fact, that's one of the questions the apostolic nuncio asked me. He said, do you know Bishop Henning? I said, no, I don't, but I'll get to know him now. (laughs) Um, So then right the following week is when we went to the bishops' meeting, the annual meeting in in Baltimore. So that's where I first met Bishop Henning in person. And um, we've had some conversations in between, and he was here for an overnight visit uh, a couple weeks ago, just to get the lay of the land and get things organized. Um, I'm, I'm terribly impressed by him. He just seemed like a really Great guy, good guy. He comes with a very strong academic background, academic credentials. He has good um, pastoral experience. He's worked in parishes. He's taught in a seminary. Um, He's multilingual. He speaks three or four different languages. Um, He's going to be terrific. I could not, I did not know him before, but I could not be happier by his choice. He's going to be terrific. So I'm very, very pleased about that.
0: I want to talk about some uh, local issues. Earlier this month, Governor Dan McKee <coughs> evicted a homeless tent encampment that was set up on the grounds of the uh, state house. A Superior Court judge upheld the removal of the occupants, uh, occupants. but it was a, it was a pretty <coughs> ugly period there for a few mm-hmm. days or maybe more than a week. Did you support or oppose the governor's decision?
1: Well, I didn't have a particular position on that because I didn't know all the details about... what but- exactly what was going on and who was involved and what the timeline was. I did say in one of my tweets that... They- we happen to have that tweet, okay, so uh, they can
0: bring up the tweet right now, and, <laughs> and, I, and I can read it since I sure. assume you don't... You're pulling a Tim uh, Russert uh, on it yes. and bringing up the old uh, quotation. I'll, I'll read it uh, since I'm sure you don't have it memorizing. Addressing <laughs> the homeless crisis in Rhode Island and elsewhere <laughs> should be a top priority, but it will require the goodwill and cooperation of all state and local officials, nonprofits, the faith community, advocates. In this part, I, I want to ask you about, in the homeless folks themselves... What does that last part mean?
1: Well, again, I think that the general thrust was that everybody has to come together to work on solving this problem. And I think there's a long term solution and a short term solution. But I think the homeless folks themselves have to, when they're given options that are safe and secure, they have to be willing to consider them and not just to uh, stake out a position, at the State House or anywhere else, just to make a political point. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily what happened, but I think sometimes. Um, isn't you know, the political the, point important, though—the no, one that the, yeah, the fundamental issue that they're driving at here? I don't know; it's theirs to make necessarily. Why? They're interest. the homeless. Well, they are the homeless, of course, and they are the people who have to be involved in this. My point was that, that we can't just force something upon them. They have to be involved in the decision making as well. And uh, it, it can't just be something that the state government and nonprofits and the advocates and the church get together and say, This is what we're going to do to you. Point was, they have to also be involved in this decision making process. And hopefully, they would cooperate when there are other good options available and um, they would go to a place that's safe and secure. That's why, as you know, we have Emmanuel House. It's been placed for the diocese for 12 years now. Each night, we have about 60 men who come there and they have a safe, and warm and secure place to stay. So that's been part of our ministry for 12 years now and we're hoping even to expand that a little bit. We have some more room if the fire marshal approves the the location and so forth, we could take some more men almost immediately. But um, again, it's the point was that it's something everybody has to work on and we can't just impose on the homeless folks and it can't just be a political football between the state and the advocates and the nonprofits. There's a long-term solution a short-term solution, and we have to work. It's a it's a huge um, cultural and, and social challenge for us.
2: You know, the diocese <coughs> is, you can see kind of on the front lines, it's mm. charitable work when uh, new problems are <laughs> developing or worsening anxiety, and You mentioned Emmanuel House and homelessness. You also have to keep the heat on. Uh, initiative you do every year to to raise money to help people with their energy costs obviously energy costs a huge concern right now I mean what are you seeing in terms of the trends in that program you know you're seeing evidence uh, that people are feeling the pinch around Rhode Island from the cost crisis yeah
1: absolutely I just had a delivery of uh, heating oil to my house last mm-hmm. week I think it wasn't price was about double what it was last year it's it's very very expensive um, so keep the heat on we started 18 years ago and we've raised about four million dollars in 18 years to help Um, I think 16,000 households, I believe is the number. So again, it's something we've had going on for a long time because, again, it's an attempt to to make a difference in our community. It's what the church does, whether it's providing food pantries or soup kitchens or help to the homeless or keep the heat on or assistance to uh, moms who are pregnant or new moms. Uh, We do all sorts of things to help the community. For Catholics and non-Catholics alike, we don't have a faith um, litmus test on, on these programs we offer. So keep the heat on has been important and obviously it's going to be important again this year. Um, it's going to be cold. We know that even this coming weekend and the prices are going to be more expensive. So, um, so if someone's it, watching, important. If someone's watching
2: this morning, maybe didn't expect it, but they might <clears> think they need a little help this year to get through the winter. What? How can they uh, see if they might be eligible for assistance.
1: They can go to our Diocese website and just click on the link that says keep, keep the heat on and they have uh, information, there are both for receiving assistance and for making donations. It's right uh, on our website.
0: Bishop, we have about a, a minute before we go to break. So I wanted to let you as, uh, as a huge, you know, Pittsburgh Steelers fan, reflect on the passing of Hall of Famer Frank O'Harris. He was most famous for the nineteen seventy two play The Immaculate Reception against the then Oakland Raiders. I don't know if you watched that play play out as a as a lad nineteen seventy two but uh, he was a legend, not just to Steelers fans, but to football, pro football fans everywhere. Here's that that we have the, the <laughs> video still now. It's a marvel it, to it is, see. It. It is. It's amazing. <laughs> it
1: was a great historic moment. Um, I was just when we were taping on Wednesday. I was just uh, stunned and very sad to to read the news early this morning. that He had passed away overnight. And as you say, he wasn't just a football mm-hmm. hero. Although he was that. Um, he, he was a legend and you know this play, the Immaculate Reception, was voted the most historic, the most important play in the 100-year history of the National Football League. So it was iconic, but um, more than a football player, he's an iconic figure in Pittsburgh. The city of Pittsburgh is devastated today by this news. I've heard from people in, in Pittsburgh. You think about the sports, um, uh, figures in Pittsburgh. You think of uh, Roberto Clemente for the Pittsburgh Pirates, who also died in 1972, the year of the Immaculate Reception. And for hockey, you think of Mario Lemieux, great player, record setter, helped him win Stanley Cups, save the franchise. And in football, you think mostly of, of Franco Harris, mm-hmm. who, um, again, it, the, the irony of the timing is, is unbelievable because this weekend, they were honoring the 50th anniversary right. of that play, and they were retiring his number mm.
2: this weekend in Pittsburgh against the Oakland Raiders. In uh, fact, I think uh, he was on <laughs> CBS this, uh, mornings today doing an interview about it was I he really I saw her, her had just taped something so right. i'm sorry
0: 72 is young i'm sure you feel the, the same you <laughs> i
1: think it's very young yeah. that's, I, again i don't know
2: i don't know the circumstances of his passing but i think it's very young it was very sudden I, just briefly i have to ask you yeah. do you wince at all as a bishop at the nickname immaculate reception just knowing it's <laughs> it a play on the
1: immaculate well conception? it's right up there with a hill mary pass yeah, <laughs> I guess you right. just sort so of have the to accept it Catholic can lend these things to our society and that's okay
0: all right we're going going to take a break here on the program. When we come back, our conversation with Bishop Thomas Tobin continues, Any he regrets does, uh, that he has in his tenure uh, leading the Providence Diocese. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Alongside 12 News Politics editor Ted Nisi, our guest this week is Bishop Thomas Tobin. Bishop, the day after the November elections, You tweeted, quote, political setbacks will will happen, then went on to comment about the church's uh, pro-life stance. Look, you and other anti-abortion supporters got what you wanted, I'm sure, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court. But I, I wonder if you think if that backfired in any way, you saw several states across the country pass laws codifying the fundamentals of Roe, including here in Rhode Island. In the midterms were not, as you pointed out in your tweet, great for Republicans, a party that at last check you were a, a, a member of. Mm-hmm. Does that fall out?
1: Well, both of you would know more about the uh, political analysis and the feedback than, than I would. Um, I, I think the point is in the overturn of Roe v. Wade, which I think was a good moment for our country because uh, it does, in one sense, return it to the states, but also says there is no constitutional right uh, to abortion. Um, so I, I think, in a sense, that was a good step, but it was only one step. In some ways, I think there was an overreaction to the overturn of Roe v. Wade on both sides of the issue. Those who were frightened by the fact that it had been overturned and thought was the end of the world, and the pro-lifers who thought this was the best thing ever, and that was the end of the end of the struggle. We know it's not the end of the struggle. And as I've said many times, the, the commitment on behalf of human life and unborn children, it's not just a political issue, although obviously it has political ramifications. It's a matter of faith for us. We believe that God created these children in his image, image or likeness of likeness of God himself. And every time an abortion takes place, a child dies. That's the point we need to recall. So uh, politics aside, and we all have, you know, our own... Um, Reactions to that, I suppose. I, I think the reaction to the overturn of Roe v. Wade was uh, there was too much of a reaction
0: on both sides of the issue. I think you, you've had a tenuous relationship with uh, Twitter. I remember there was a time you you gave it up. Um, and you know, when you make a tweet like that, I go through the comments, and you I'm sure you've seen them. There's a lot of people who are very upset that uh, that you you weigh in like that. Um, I guess two questions here. Do you have any regrets about um, some of the stuff that you've tweeted in the past and how it has gotten a reaction from, particularly your flock? Mm-hmm. And are we going to see like Bishop Tobin unplugged as you go into retirement <laughs> and you're going to tweet even more and weigh in more on political issues? Yeah.
1: Well, first of all, I recognize that whenever I tweet something, it does, it can have some some impact. And I when I um, I have some self-control. I don't read the comments. Sometimes, you know, I do read them and I recognize... They're not great, I can tell you that. (laughs) A lot of them aren't great, but some of them are very positive, too. It all depends on what I've written, I suppose. Um, So I recognize when I tweet something, it could be a reaction. So I try to be a little bit more prudent now than I was in the past, I suppose. I guess some things in the past I may have worded differently, but that's hindsight. Um, I think the church has to be involved in this a kind of public dis- uh, debate and public conversation. That's the role of the church I think to speak truth to power to be involved in these public conversations um, when I'm unplugged when I'm uh, Retired my actually my intention at this point is to unplug completely and not to be involved in Twitter at all I think I've heard that do. before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't retired then. <laughs> so that's my intention to move off the public stages as much as possible. I'll be retired. That's what retirement is. There'll be a new bishop in place, so I expect to get off Twitter once and for all. Um, in the relatively near future,
2: you know, when, you know, <coughs> you you mentioned earlier that you think the biggest challenge for the new bishop is going to be, and it would be for if he was taking over any diocese in the United states right now, right. is the drop off in participation in relig- in Catholic life, and it's interesting because if you look over the last couple of decades, it's almost like church leaders have tried. Uh, and again, to use political terms, a more conservative approach under Pope John Paul and Pope Benedict, we saw the, the, the drop off generally continue overall. I know there are pockets of strength. Then Pope Francis, a, a much more progressive-oriented mm-hmm. um, pontificate, and yet the trends continue. So I wonder, wh- what do you think? As you you know come to the end of your time as a bishop, what do you think would stave that off, or is it just such a large? you know, secular trend that the church, which used to be so dominant, especially in this region and culture, just can't really offset it to any great degree.
1: Yeah, I think, um, first of all, it's important to note that the drop off in religious participation, it happens in um, what you might call conservative dioceses Mm -hmm. and more liberal dioceses. Mm -hmm. It's happening in conservative countries, if you can say that. And in more liberal countries, like in Western Europe, the drop-off has been, has been catastrophic mm-hmm. in places like Germany and France and other Western European countries. So I don't think that's a political mm-hmm. um, event, a political phenomenon. Um, it's Again, it's a cultural thing in Western culture. Other places, the church is, is growing and flourishing in Africa and so forth in some parts of Asia. So it's a cultural thing. Um, how does the church regain I think we need to be faithful to our mission, we have to be true to preaching the gospel and the teaching of the church. Very few people want a watered down Christianity. I mean, they can find other values in other places of culture. I think they want the Catholic church to be true to its mission, even when it's, it's difficult and it's not uh, very popular. Um, Jesus himself wasn't always well accepted. And I think the church has to be true to its mission. I, I've reflected, you know, coming to this um, time in my life, you mentioned the comments on Twitter and so forth. Um, there are some people who certainly don't like me, but it, it strikes me that in, in today's world a bishop who doesn't have some enemies Probably hasn't done his job very well Because if you're preaching the truth if you're teaching the the faith of the church there're gonna be a lot of people who don't like that especially in a very liberal and a very secular culture, but um, Jesus wasn't always popular either and anyone who's a leader in the church or in politics is going to be somewhat divisive. But
2: even uh, just even <laughs> even what it means to be faithful to the church can be contested. You see, I, I, I've been mm-hmm. thinking about the Latin Mass controversy, which has been coming up. I saw the New York Times article about it recently, where uh, you know some some Catholics believe that before Vatican II, and the older viewers will remember the old, the older Latin sure. Mass, Turned the priest was turned around, it was in Latin mostly. Um, that is true true Catholic worship, and the modern post-Vatican II Mass is not. And then you have Pope Francis now saying, whoa, 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 that's gonna become a splinter movement uh, with the Latin Mass, we mm-hmm. need everyone doing, Vatican II was you know, the, the the new way we're gonna do it, and we have to all do it together. I mean, what, what do you think about that divide?
1: Well, there is some division there, but I think that's been a little bit overstated too. Um, you know, I, I'm a fan of both liturgies. I, I've never said the traditional Latin Mass. I'm not about to learn now because it's complicated. <laughs> you never have. Oh, because never you, got, have. you were ordained after. I was ordained when the changes uh, had taken place. Um, so I've never said the traditional Latin Mass, although I support it completely. We have some wonderful, wonderful, faithful Catholics, generous Catholics, very active Catholics who love the traditional Latin Mass. Most of our churches, of course, are the new liturgy, if we can call it that, also many wonderful, faithful, generous, dedicated Catholics. So I'm a fan of both liturgies, although I say only the the contemporary, the, the Novus Ordo, as we call it, the new Mass. So. Um, Uh, You know, I I hope that either liturgy doesn't become a source of division. It doesn't have to be. And we haven't had much problem at all here in in Diocese of Providence over that issue. Other places have. We've been um, pretty fortunate that way.
0: I know you're not. We have two minutes left, uh, just a little over. Um, I know you're not taking off right away, but I I don't know if you're going to be back on this program ever again. This is probably going to be the last time. So I wonder if there's anything you want to say to not just your your flock and the Diocese of Providence, but to all of Rhode Islanders who have known you since 2005. Yeah, well, again, um, I think it might be appropriate to end with
1: this. That We're right up, you know, in the Christmas season now. We'll be celebrating Christmas as this tapes uh, shows today on, on Christmas Day. So um, I think it would be a nice way to to conclude by saying let's pay attention to the, the message of Christmas. It's a message of uh, hope and and peace and um, looking forward to the future. You know, when when God sent His Son Jesus into the world to be our Savior and Redeemer, He was making a statement of confidence in the human race, that He still loves us, He still believes in us, He still has hope for us, and that we can respond in that way. You know, the, uh, the, the hymn O oh, Holy Night says, that, a thrill of hope a weary world rejoices. And without a doubt, we have a weary world with, you know, war in Ukraine and persecution of the Church in China and the Uh, results of natural disasters in Africa and violence in our own streets and so much political division. We have a weary world, but Christmas is a thrill of hope. It's a reminder that God is still with us. He loves us. In the end, everything's going to be okay. And I think we need to pause a little bit at Christmas to reflect upon that, to pray about it, and to... um, Recognize that God is still with us and that we do our best, we work hard, but in the end, God's still in charge and it's gonna be okay.
0: With one <laughs> less than a minute left, personal question, what's next, are you gonna leave Rhode Island? Are you gonna go back to Pittsburgh or the Pennsylvania area where you're from? No, I expect, and it's
1: fully my intention to stay in Rhode Island. I will have been here almost 20 years. Um, so it's my home now so I'll be staying here in, in my residence I believe the new bishops going to live downtown at the Cathedral okay I will stay here in my little home in East Providence um, and I will certainly be willing to assist the bishop in any way I can I bet I want to I'll move away from the spotlight. So, um, God bless you both, and hope you have wonderful days in the future. Well, if I'm back in your program, it's probably because I got in trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, you are we we, running for something. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, I'm too old for that. <laughs> all right,
0: Bishop. We we do appreciate you coming on every year. It's been thank a, you. it's been a real pleasure. Merry Christmas to all of our viewers. Thank you for watching this year. I'm off next week. You'll be in the capable hands of Ted Nisi. For Ted Nisi, I'm Tim White, Bishop. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great holiday.